Yeah, I think the key is really for us in this fund, it's the short hold, right? That way you don't have to worry about interest rates going up or adjustments going down. Uh, if we're in and we're out, we're trading forward and we're in and we're out, we're trading forward. We just focus on uh, making the money going in. Listen, everybody, we all know that real estate is the most proven way to build wealth. But why isn't everyone wealthy from real estate then? It's hard to know where to start, and most of the education out there is just complete trash, and you end up investing your money on a series of courses instead of in real estate. That's not how this podcast works. We give you the blueprint to successful real estate investing and bring on guests actually willing to share their secrets. I started my real estate investing journey as a freshman in college when I bought my first duplex and have been in the trenches doing deals ever since. And today, I now own hundreds of millions of dollars of investment property. On this podcast, you will learn what you actually need to know to be a successful active or passive real estate investor. And we'll offer our takes on what's happening today so you can navigate this market and build wealth. I'm Drew Brenneman, and this is the Brenneman Blueprint. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Brenneman Blueprint. Excited for today's episode. I have Patrick Grimes on with Invest on Main Street. Uh, Patrick's been someone I've been following for a while. He's got a really great uh, email uh, list, I guess you'd call it, where I get get uh, these comprehensive emails where he's um, doing a lot of interesting things in the real estate space and also some other 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 investments too. Um, so happy to have him on and. He's got an exciting story. So um, welcome. Glad to be here, Drew. Perfect. Well, yeah. So I think, uh, why don't you just tell us about yourself? How'd you get uh, going in real estate? and Just kind of bring us to current day. Sure. Well, I was educated as a high-tech professional. I have a mechanical engineering undergraduate and an MBA and a master's in engineering. Um, learned early on from actually the founder of one of the high tech farms I worked for that he actually earned his money by taking everything he learned in high tech and then dumping it into real estate. Nice. <laughs> his, his only regret was not investing in more real estate sooner. Yeah. Um, I've heard that. Yeah. Or the other soon, regret people have is when they, when they sell <laughs> and don't buy more. Still, so. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think for most everybody that advice rings true, but I got that advice in 2006. <laughs> so, so my first investment, I think you started investing in 2005, right, Drew? So, right. Yeah, you're a little bit familiar. Uh, yeah, so I, I invested in very, what I thought was like, high, you know, t- trying to double, triple my money every year or two. So I was very aggressive, young, snot and engineer. Uh, I did pre-development, lost everything in 2009 and 10. Everything flipped upside down. Everybody went bankrupt. I, I didn't go bankrupt, and I I pushed through and, and had to pay quite a bit to get out and took a big hit. Uh, so, And what were those, first, deals, those deals like? That was pre-development, so you're tying up land and getting it ready for someone to build on? Yeah, it was my intention was to eventually build on it. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, perfect timing with that. So a lot of, lot of lessons on, on risk early on then, I'm sure. Yeah, it was just a couple of years ago that I saw that they finally picked that development back up again. So it's been a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I like that that still does ring true for that advice, and I, I I carry that with me. And as I got more successful in my tech career, I I started wanting to go, you know, do it again. And what was I going to do with the cash that I had coming in the door? And I started. I thought, well, I'll just go do the DIY real estate thing. And I, you know, I'll listen to those TV shows and maybe I'll flip homes. I was like, no, maybe I'll just buy them and hold them. And, and then I'll buy and find discounted 
properties. I started learning about recession resilient markets and buying for cash flow, you know, not putting up a bunch of, but not getting too much debt so that I could, you know, the property would pay for itself. And if there was another recession, I could ride it out. So I started looking at how to be the tortoise and not the hare. And, um, I found single family, um, in Houston, it's very stable and decided to go that direction. And I did, it was working, spying distressed, renovating, uh, and then refining out and, and holding, but I was moonlighting it with my high tech career. <laughs> my high tech yeah, career and, was crazy. I, and I was, also you were living in SoCal then, or where were you? Cause I don't think you were in Houston. You understand about your story? No, I was actually up in the Bay area. Yeah, in San Francisco area, Bay Area, right? So, and also, yeah, so you're doing that, you know, two thousand miles away or whatever it is, you know. So that's uh, that's adds a whole series of challenges too. How you can I've moonlighted, but it was all local, at least you know, or relatively local, where I could just drive to the property. Where this is uh, hard to go on your lunch break to the property if it's in Houston. So right. Yeah. And I tell you what, that was the American dream though. It was, you know, get, be really successful at some great revered career and then go become a property owner. And so I, but there was something wrong with it, right? Something wrong. Is, in fact, I've got articles on Forbes where I outline the asset protection issues associated with that. And, you know, Patrick Grimes, Forbes asset protection, for example, or the high risks associated with direct property ownership. And, also, and and the fact that I couldn't, it was impacting my ability to do what brought in the income that allowed me to invest in the first place. And it devastated my time, my free time with my family, friends, and hobbies. So when I met my wife, was soon to be wife, I that's when I decided to stop doing single family. And uh, we reapproached it after a couple of years and decided to partner up and do uh, larger assets. And that's when I learned about passive investing into larger assets that are in recession resilient markets and, and larger multifamily apartment buildings that that uh, are non-recourse debt, that are very low risk with onsite property management, you have to chase down. And then that allowed me to invest in a way where it didn't subtract anything uh, from my family, friends, and hobbies. And I was able to become successful and uh, in real property ownership and get the tax advantages and everything. And so that's that that led to then me myself uh, becoming an operator and sponsor later on down the road. But a lot of my investors just are off enjoying their lives uh, with real property ownership, not taking much of the risk at all and taking a lot of the upside just investing passively right yeah it makes a lot of sense how did you get how did you get going into your first deal where you partnered with somebody or maybe just say you were inv had invested passively but how did how did you make the transition from uh buying those single family either flips or rentals in houston to to then getting into these other other deals and yeah well my um I tend to be a little bit of an analysis paralysis kind of individual i'm an analyst by nature I have a master's in engineering with emphasis in systems engineering, and I did automation and robotics. So um, I I attacked it like I was building a new process. I, I learned, downloaded every course I could find and went to conferences and work camp, workshops and 
learned everything I could about the industry, started traveling on my free time to, to some learn about, uh, meet up with different groups, started joining meetups, uh, on real estate investing and eventually started to immerse myself in a culture, started learning about the people that are really doing things versus the people that are just talking about it. And, um, uh, when I, on the, then I started learning how to analyze deals. Um, and I think that was what really my desire was to get in there and go find all the deals myself at first. And when I started finding, meeting brokers and getting deal flow and uh, putting them into, you know, the underwriting templates and doing rent comps and CapEx budgets. And I did that for about nine months, maybe a year and a half. Um, until it was about two and a half years before I ever got into my first deal. But, uh, and I talked to a bunch of uh, very experienced people. I befriended a bunch of very experienced uh, operators in the space and kept bringing deal after deal after deal until one of them finally said, hey, look, let's work on this together. And so uh, that was, uh, went from three bedroom, went through a portfolio, three bedroom, two baths to and my first multifamily was an 86 unit. Nice. And then what did that, what did that first partnership deal look like? So, cause then that's someone you had met, um, either in the market or at a conference. Yeah. Yeah. So I had, had numerous conferences and, uh, I had started, uh, helping out in any kind of way that I could figure out and sort of building that trust along the way. And I didn't even negotiate, hey, sign this contract for a certain partnership percentage. And I was more like, hey, I'd like to just tag along for a ride and learn how it, how how to play the game, right? And I'd like, like how it really works. And like many things, it's like in engineering, when you're, you actually get into it, you know, things work a little differently than you learn in school. So yeah, for sure. Um, it wasn't until the end of the second deal where we had actually formalized, you know, here's a partnership uh, percentage. And, um, you know, and then by the time we were on the third deal, it was on rails and you know, it was a really good fit. And I think that's really the, the best way to partner is just to get in there and see who's, you know, what we like to call adding value, right? <laughs> and not, not, not spend all your time negotiating who's going to get what percentage, but let's get a deal done. And then let's, let's on the other side of it, see if we want to keep working together and and who the real players are. Yeah, it's interesting you say that and that you were willing to do that because I, I think that's, uh, that's very unique because most people would, they wouldn't, they wouldn't do that. They wouldn't say, okay, let's, I'll potentially, I mean, you could have gotten screwed over on that first deal. Um, and what's interesting is I have the same mindset as what you're talking about, where if I was going to get screwed over, I'd want to know on the first deal, not on like the 20th. Like I'll just, if you, if we really need to have every, little thing in the contract from the first minute we work together like that's probably not a great partnership anyways so um what were you thinking at that point like what was going through your head I, like uh like why would you not need to have everything signed and figured out ahead of time well i i've been a bit of a handshake uh first who then white kind of guy and to your point once you sign on a contract in these deals you're married you know, you're married, you know, three, five, seven years for better or for worse. And that's why I talk a lot about investors being passive because as a limited partner, you know, you're shielded um, from legal and financial risk uh, beyond your initial investment. And oftentimes we can get that back through a refinance. Um, but as a general partner in a securities offering, you have unlimited liability, right? You, 
um, you are personally liable. And that's one of the few industries where that's the case. So it's not all daisies and dam alliance being a sponsor, an operator like like Drew and I in these deals. Um, and so for me, I I was we were moving so quickly, and I was so excited to just be in the game and to learn. And I was spending all my time figuring out what other jobs and tasks I could pick up along the way and learn. And um, I was learning so much so quick. Um, from some really awesome guys that I was just more interested in playing, right? Than I was, you know, saying, oh, stop, work with me, the new guy <laughs> on a contract and right. sign on it. But we eventually, we got there and we had a handshake um, on the general idea on what it was going to be. And that was good enough for me. Yeah, no, that's great. And that's that's a great way to go through life where... You know, on one hand, you already had, you know, money from your prior real estate investing and your your um, your tech career. So it's nice to take a somewhat of a gamble like that uh, and then, if you know, see if it pays off versus maybe that would have never gotten going. If you would have said, I need to have all these things figured out ahead of time, they might have been like, we already got the deal. We got to focus on getting this thing done, not, um, you know, some new contract we have to all figure out and, and deal with. So that's no, I just want to highlight that because, you know, credit to you for doing that, because there's been times in my life that have been similar where people are surprised I did something like that. But at this point, you know, I was like, all I had to lose was time, you know, or, you know, I'm, I'm also investing in the deal, but that like I own that part. So I'm just really speculating my time. And, you know, if, uh, you know, I want to, I think I'll work with these people long-term. So I wasn't really worried like that. Um, so interesting. Yeah. So then I'm um, speaking of passive investors. I mean, what have you kind of, I mean, l learned between, let's say, you know, uh, at that point where you've kind of got into your f bigger, you know, your, we'll call it your first larger deal to today. I mean, uh, why is passive investing so great? Well, I've, I've covered it a little bit. You know, I, I think it, it, being able to take advantages over the real asset, um, the real asset advantages, meaning that you're getting inflation hedged returns where our rents grow with inflation. It's hard to find something like that. Right. And housing, food and energy or housing and energy specifically tend to be very indexed with inflation, especially income generating real estate. And I have an article on Forbes about that. It's, you know, Patrick Grimes, inflation Forbes, if you're interested kind of outlines how that's the case. But if as a passive investor, you can take advantage of that and you can have your your retirement maybe win with inflation in that in that case. Um, but without having to sign on a loan, right? Because you don't have to if you're a passive investor. Without having to risk, you know, somebody tripping and falling at the property and coming and suing you personally, right? So just like you would if you had your own rental. Um, and those are big deals because it turns out there's, I mean, I, I know that there's frivolous lawsuits from people getting sued, but it was, it was signing on the loan, which took me down in 2009 and 10. Right. And as a limited partner, past investor, you, they can't come after your assets. You're not cross collateralized. Um, if you invest in a syndication, that's in an LLC and the sponsors, the operators are signing on the loans themselves. And if somebody trips and falls, you have, you're insulated. Um, and what that means is, and if you put it, if you own them in like a Nevada, Wyoming, or Delaware LLC, for example, like I do, a holding company, um, it, it means that each of these investments, uh, you're protected from them. Uh, on the other hand, if you own it in a Wyoming LLC, 
uh, they're protected from you because if you get sued for accidentally knocking in somebody on a, if you're driving down the freeway and, and hit a motorcycle or something and you get sued, uh, then they can't take those assets if they're in one of those asset protected entities. Um, but that's, that's not the case. If you're a sponsor, it's harder to do that. And, uh, they're not only are you protected from them and they're protected from you, but all of your individual investments are protected from each other. And that's that cross collateralization. And as a passive investor, you can invest, not just trying to be active nearby where you're at or spreading yourself really thin all over the country, but you can invest with people that have decades of experience and a track record in all of the growth markets where it's landlord friendly and tax advantage and you can build a diversified portfolio. And that's what we're working on with our investors. Also, like today, today's the day when you can go find really incredible deals. I mean, we just found uh, four, we just stood up four deals where we were able to acquire them with the ability to get our capital back in less than a couple of years. In fact, six months to a year. And now we're rolling it up into a, a recessionary acquisition fund where acquisition five and six are going to be within this fund where our investors have said, look, I'm going to take advantage of, I mean, right now the, the, there's, there's a reset going on real estate. So that means there's opportunity. Well, how do you get a hold of that opportunity? As a passive investor, you'll never know where to find it. You won't have the resources, the knowledge or the network to do that. You want to, we, we're analyzing a thousand properties. We're coming up 2,200 viable leads a month and we're acquiring one or two of them. You wouldn't be able to do that. And so by investing into a group like uh, that does have an acquisition engine, just the engine itself costs about 200,000 a year just for the resources and the licensing and the, and the, the, the people that just analyze and look for the properties. I mean, that's pretty sophisticated stuff. You can't access that kind of deal finding resources as a pass uh, if you were out try to go do it yourself, and you don't have the relationships with the brokers. To go yeah, I was thinking that's even them. the biggest piece is yeah, or even if you somehow did have the relationships, they're they're not. It's uh, unlikely, you know, whatever deal you're looking at, they're they're going to be vouching for you as a buyer. You know, if you're a brand new investor, and it's hard to get the deals under contract. It's hard to hear about them because uh, yeah, like eighty percent of the stuff we've bought has been like a uh, off market in some capacity, usually through a broker, but it's been not widely marketed, you know, to that point. So, you know, to get the same deal flow as like uh me or Patrick, like it's would be, would be pretty tough. And then you're, you know, kind of, you're, you're doing all the work then too, as well. So, which to me is even the biggest point, almost the, the liability, that's a good point. Um, you know, plus on top of what you said, you know, the property has insurance and a general liability policy that can, you know, step in on a lot of that slip and fall kind of stuff, but there's like a limit to what those pay. Uh, and then if it were exceeding that, yeah, that's going to like the decision makers uh, first. And that it's the, uh, the sponsorship team, not the passive investors. So yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, to me, yeah, the, um, being able to diversify the workload piece is like important. Cause I, you know, um, I think a lot of the folks that you have invested in your deals are already busy with their their lives already not looking for like a second job so cool well yeah so then how are you guys uh like the how are you guys finding deals today and what do those look like well all of the recent deals have been off market as you suggested so 
either broker relationships or in this uh, this acquisition engine that we have is actually direct to owner. So we're we're working to go the the first the first four have just been direct to owner, and we're looking at those kind of mid sized deals that uh, where they're a little less sophisticated, they're struggling. Um, the latest one we just had a guy who inherited a property who's a high, who's a programmer in San Francisco. And he inherited a property from his father in the Midwest. And he just wants to exit. He doesn't know what to do with it. He, he has just been sitting on it. And we were able to uncover it. And, you know, we'll, we're going to acquire that. And we're going to get our capital back within six months to a year. It's incredible. And so that's just sifting through those, um, finding those opportunities. Yeah, no, I, I hear that. What What's the deal size on something like that? Well, we're going to start the fund. Um, so far they've been anywhere from like 1 million to 7 million. Uh, we're going to start the fund at, in that same range. Not that we haven't found the bigger deals. We found like 20, 29 million deal, uh, where we could literally get our capital back in six months to a year. Um, but we're launching the fund with one, $1.7 million deal and one $4 million deal, which is acquisition five and six. Uh, and then the intention being with those, once we, we're buying it all in cash, cause it's a little bit like whack-a-mole. You find these deals, you got to swoop them up quickly, right? So we can pounce quickly. Uh, and then we're going to backfill with 50% leverage, very, very low leverage. So they cash flow and, um, and all these cash flow, by the way, these are not non-cash, they're not distressed assets. They're just distressed operators or owners. Right. Um, and then we can reuse that capital for our next acquisition. And we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna have tranches of equity raises when we need them, but the idea is to be able to not take on lots of smaller assets, but to take on the right assets. We have an incredible deal that's twenty one twenty nine million dollars. We're gonna be able to take that on, and about a year from now, because we're gonna have equity freed up from trading forward of assets within the fund, uh, and also from capital raises. So our goal is to systematically, as we build diversification, one property comes two, two to four, four to eight, eight to 16. And as the liquidity comes open, we can then begin to continue the, continue to gain diversified by also doing larger assets. And that's part of the key to the key to the fund's success. And then how's the money from, let's say the, with a deal returned within six to 12 months or how, how you're saying that's a, uh, a cash out refinance where you're going to increase the, the leverage from 50 to just um, uh, a higher amount once you've increased the rents and everything? Yeah. So a lot of we're just, a lot of it is just buying, uh, getting the deal on the, on the acquisition. Um, and then it takes us like to your point where sometimes we're doing a lease up very little value add, uh, not a lot of value add. Um, but it does take us about that six months to a year is what we're conservatively saying, uh, for us to get us to the full realization of the property's value. Um, we had properties that we, uh, acquired for less than $2 million, which we were immediately able to get a valuation for 7 million. So the, it's incredible, the ability for us to get deals. Like I said, some of these people have no idea what they're sitting on. They don't really care about it. It was kind of their, you know, their, their father's that past project. And it's just, it's not, not pretty looking to them. It's not a core plus beautiful thing. Like what you buy drew it's, 
it's not something you want to bring home and introduce to mom. It's it's a it's a solid asset that's um, just been neglected. Yeah, no, I know. Yeah, I know what you're saying. The the uh, all the deals that we did in Chicago for this would be like 2013 to 20. 18 like in that time period it was all similar profile where the buildings they were they were actually i would still describe them as they were nice but it was all this operational uh an operational play like we could buy it uh it's a new deal from a developer but they rented it out way too cheap way too cheaply so then we go in we raise the rents you know a lot of times basically the only thing we did was repaint the common areas and units like a way better light gray color that was the only construction we were doing at most of these deals and for 13 in a row uh, with about an average year, uh, of ownership, we were able to refinance out all the equity for 13 in a row, um, using the Freddie Mac, uh, SBL program. So, and like the same thing you're, you're talking about where the year we made mo- probably most of the money on the buy on the purchase, but then we did have to raise the rents across the board to what they should be. Um, but we were, we were buying it, you know, right based on those low rents. So yeah, that's, that's no, that's a great, it's a great strategy. And I mean, I would think in the next year or two, interest rates going to also come down, which will help in terms of uh, those deals are just going to go up in value as rates fall and, um, you know, it'd be easier to refinance out more money or, in, you know, or just refinance and pay less interest, however you want to work it within the fund. So, yeah, that sounds like a nice strategy. Yeah, I think the key is really for us in this fund, it's the short hold, right? That way you don't have to worry about interest rates going up or, adjustments going down uh if we're in and we're out we're trading forward and we're in and we're out we're trading forward we just focus on uh, making the money going in uh and not spending a year or two or three or more trying to max it get get from like 85 percent of the value to 100 percent of the value right if we can do a quick lease up if there's or just do some some minor changes uh, minor improvements we'll do it but if it takes longer than six months, we've we've already got our value and we're just going to trade it forward to the next and then get that next stair step up in the next. And I I honestly am not the, not a big fan of that value I play right now as much as I used to be because those incremental changes right now, the it's harder to get the labor force to do the renovations. The And that's the only reason I'm bringing this up. And there's supply chain issues with trying to get all the stuff you need to do the value add. Um and it's hard to get people out and in places yeah, like Texas and Atlanta, where we used to get people out in just a couple of weeks and now it's taking a few months. And so the, it's just delaying things. Right. I, so I think the reason why I like that, the recessionary fund is we just focus purely on that buy play. Right. And not worry about all the noise, right. Of trying to maximize it. And then we just trade it for it uh within the fund and compound returns yeah that's interesting and and so a lot of the holds within the funds are actually i was assuming you guys were going to buy refinance and hold it within the fund a lot of this is going to be where you're just going to sell it you're going to trade it forward yeah so we're going to do we're going to pull as much capital and then we're going to buy another property and then as soon as we can trade forward you know 1031 exchange within the fund of the next asset then you're selling the first asset, let's say. So yeah, asset one, refi, buy asset two. Uh, once you find asset three, it's about time to be selling asset one. Yeah, 1031 exchange, asset one to asset three. So one property becomes two, two to four, four to eight. Okay, So nice. that's And then each of those is a, a, a buy, play, stair step. So we're not hoping that we know going in before money goes hard, 
we we're confident we get our capital out in six months to a year, right? So we know going in, we're buying it right. We don't have to hope and wish and pray that we can value play or gamble on lease ups or really anything else. Yeah. And also one thing that's interesting that you touched on is the 1031 piece. Cause so I've done, uh, like probably a half dozen 1031s, um, They've been easy, I felt like, to execute um, because I just, on those deals, I just had one investor. So we were all going the same direction. All my equity was from one guy. And we our, our plan was to buy one or, you know, was to sell it and just buy a bigger deal. Whereas on a lot of these syndications, it's like some people want to be out, some want to stay in. The timing's tough to do. But yeah, that sounds like a real benefit that I just realized um, of a fund where at the end of the day, the fund is the property owner you're an, you're an owner in the fund and the fund's doing the 1031 is, uh, is that how that works or really, um, how, how did the 1031s with the fund work? Yeah. Similar to you. Well, so we, our last 1031 exchange was, we have 80 some investors and we bought for 27 million in Jacksonville, Florida. And in less than a year, we sold it for 37 million. And, um, so we, it was a pretty solid win. Yeah, And we had identified another property in Texas and we said, Hey, anybody want a 1031 with us? Let us know. All of them, but like three or four, uh, went with us. We paid them out before we closed and then we 1031 exchanged everybody else. But, but yeah, it was, there was some work because there's some communication and everything, but within the fund, you're exactly right. Uh, within the operating agreement, the PP or the PPM of the fund, we state the intention. This is a growth. This is a yield play. It cash flows. Uh, the further it starts going to start cash flowing, maybe we're projecting about 3% because we're buying re- income generating real estate. We're not buying distressed assets. Uh, and, 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 but as we get more properties in the fund, it'll cash flow more. But the goal is stated and disclosed in the beginning is that the, the, the sponsorship team will not be distributing the capital from refinances, liquidity events, and sales to the investors until a three-year hold period in which you can call your capital back if you would like at that three-year point. So at that three-year point, you let us know in advance and we will then time the sale of properties like like we did in, before and we'll buy you out as we trade forward um, or we'll, we'll distribute your proceeds and exit you from the fund. If you want to continue to move forward within the fund, you can, which will mean that you're going to scale at even higher returns than you were in the past because you went from essentially investing in maybe one or two assets with two, we're starting fun with two to now you're at 12 and then you're going to be in, you know, uh, 36 by the time you do the next three year tranche. Right. So the value, the yield play and the diversification and scale just really exponentially grows. If you're willing to take a little lower cash flow position, which actually does compound over time too, a lower cash flow initially, but to really take advantage of the upside we're seeing in this downturn. And that's really where you want to be. The rest of your real estate portfolio is struggling right now. Well, are you exposed to the opportunities that will balance that out? And tell you what, when I lost everything in 2009 and 10, I wasn't. <laughs> I lost everything. And so I was all in and, and headed down with it. And I think if everybody, you take a minute to take a step back, be like, well, what if the market does crash? Where am I investing to ride the upside of that? And it's in these opportunistic acquisitions. And it's not going to be a huge cash flow play. That's not the point. Uh, but it's going to be a really awesome and exciting yield play. And 
the further the market goes, the higher the fund's going to go out. Yeah, that's really, yeah, that's interesting. And yeah, there's not a lot of cash flow in the market. So you might as well be um, thinking about appreciation, you know, at this point. So because if you're a cash flow investor, uh, just solely for cash flow, you'd be better off. I mean, today being getting on the lender side, you know, you could do pref equity or uh, hard money first mortgages, you know, some, you know, and be 8% plus on, on those mortgages or doing, you know, 12% pref, but that's, you're not getting any, any upside from there. Like best cases, you're just going to get your interest and pay back. Um, yeah, I like, yeah, I like the strategy. I got this, uh, 1031 story. I always tell, um, but it's a perfect example of what you're talking about where 2009, we bought an office building. We put 900,000 down on it, 930,000 to be exact, bought it for 4.4, sold it for 5.5 a few years later. 1031 into a shopping center did the same thing so you know we doubled our money on the first deal then we doubled that so now we've 4x our money then the next two deals we bought it was eight uh two shopping centers total for 18 million bucks so to your point you could the people could see the same thing in the fund where you went from having four million of real estate making you money to now fast forward whatever that was probably like over an eight-year period for us um where we weren't flipping stuff as quick as you're talking about um and now we have $18 million property making us money. And every year on those two deals, which we still own, the cash flow and the loan pay down is about $800,000 a year. So 800,000 divided by 930,000 in, I mean, that's like we're making like a you know 90% return per year on that initial, that money, not even including appreciation. So, I mean, folks could see something similar if they, you know, let their money ride in these kind of, kind of funds, I'd imagine. Um, not not where you're going to make 90% or something, but, you know, in a year, but where where you're going to see your money compound like that if you keep it in. Otherwise, a lot of times people, they'll go into syndication or something and then they they invest it. They go, they got that double on the office building, let's say, then they're then they're kind of done with it or they they say, all right, well, let me I'll look for the next syndication to put my money in. And then a year goes by uh, and, you know, this who knows how big the buying window is. I mean, it could only be a, you know six months or a year this is a little different than the um 2009 10 times where you like literally could not get a loan and uh i remember the second deal i bought in 2009 we were worried wells fargo was going to go out of business and they were one of the tenants in the shopping center like how crazy is that where we were it was, yeah if you think about yeah i know a couple like some ba- relatively large banks went under um this year but i mean thinking wells fargo might go out i mean that was like a top five size bank at the time i think like it was wild times so um but yeah no that makes that makes a lot of sense uh and then for that fund you guys are really just you're targeting multiple markets multiple product types really more just looking for um like a deal like a good acquisition so to speak it sounded like yeah we do it is all about the acquisition but we do have some markets where obviously we have much greater knowledge and network uh, and connections, and they're not in New York and California, <laughs> not where yeah. I live. And, you know, they're in the right places, um, but it is a little bit of a broader net than just being in you know the specific cities of Houston, Dallas, Austin, Atlanta, you know, Jacksonville, um, and you know, I, we're we're a little bit little bit broader in that sense. Because we really want to just chase the best deal. Again, these are not, we're not betting on the long-term growth of these markets and, you know, sustained and like, that's not the case. We're just holding them for six months to a year each. So uh, it's more just uh, get in and then uh, 
and then get out. And then the system to find the deals, that's, uh, what does that look like? Kind of, you, you had said you built it and it cost a couple hundred grand a year to run. Why don't you walk us through how, what you're, what you're doing specifically with that? Well, I probably won't go too much into detail, but I, I came from a, um, uh, a systems engineering background. So, you know, there's a, a bunch of people that help sift through a bunch of opportunities and there's licensing. Uh, and I have a partner actually that I work with on that. So, uh, but that obvi- to, that's obviously part of the challenge in this business is building a good acquisition engine. And, and that's not something that, you know, we're going to like lay out there for everybody to try and go replicate right now. And we're launching a fund. Got it. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Cause I think a lot of people, I mean, traditionally they've done that where they're cold calling people, um, you know, just kind of almost at random, but you would need some way to kind of pinpoint to, Hey, here's like a new owner or some sort of distress going on. So then, um, yeah, I mean, that's like a, a common starting point I hear for folks. And then it's interesting from there what they do, you know, whether they're calling them or sending them letters or they have a call center team. I mean, it's in- interesting. People are very the creative. secret sauce is in the specific pack software packages, which we have licenses that allow us to pinpoint exactly where to go. Yeah, because otherwise, if you're just going to cold call like everybody, like you need to be way more targeted than that, where you're not going to not going to get to the right properties. So probably like you, I get a, a half dozen or a dozen cold calls a, a day and I hate it. I'm not, I'm not a cold call fan. <laughs> so yeah. I mean, you're being interrupted. It's, yeah. Yeah. It's tough. So, well, yeah, well, sounds good. Well, cool, Patrick. Yeah. Let's leave it there. I think so. Then how would, um, so people want to get in touch with you. They want to, um, maybe I mentioned that email list, but that, um, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Yeah, and I, I appreciate your patience with me. I I'm super super sick today, so a little bit slower. So if you watched if, if you watch this at one and a half speed, I don't blame you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so persistence, pivots, and game changers is a book I I wrote. It was a I did a chapter in this. It wasn't it was an Amazon number one bestseller? Um, I'd be happy to send your audience a uh, a signed hard copy of this if they would like. You just need to go to um, invest on mainstreet.com slash book. That's the secret link invest on main and then street.com slash book. And then, um, make sure you put in a promo code so we know who you are. Yeah, let's with that put promo. In, yeah. We'll set it up for promo code drew. Let's do that. Easier promo to code. Remember. Can we, can we make it a little bit longer? So it's a little more specific. Yeah. Oh, let's okay. Let's make it the, let's go with Brenneman blueprint then. Let's be that Brenneman blueprint. Let's do that. Yeah. That'd be real specific. Yeah. All right. So yeah, um, I love it. It persistence pivots and game changers, turning challenges to the oppor- into opportunities. Brian Tracy wrote the forward, uh, but the other guys I worked with is, um, Phil Collins, lead guitarist, and Def Leppard, some entrepreneurs, NBA uh, players, um, coaches, a lot of really great stories in there. If you're interested uh, in connecting, you can always just email me, Patrick, at investonmainstreet.com. If you go to our website, investonmain and then street.com, you can go to um, just click on set up a meeting, the slash contact link. Be happy to talk with you, see what your goals are, get you pointed in the right direction. Um, where We've got some exciting things coming up, really trying to position ourselves that take advantage of this recession or these these opportunities coming out of the interest rates and everything else so i'm looking forward to talking to you great well yeah sounds good yeah thanks for being on patrick a lot of great info and i mean i think yeah today's a a great time to be i think launching a fund really i mean from the both sides actually like that's it makes sense for sponsors where 
still feel like we're a little we're we've been a touch early on uh like if the deals have been there if they've been discounted enough um sounds like you're seeing them um so times times now but it took a while i'd imagine to set this up and then this was like perfect for uh from like your standpoint in terms of getting it set up and now it's ready to go for people who want to take advantage of this um so i think it's funds make a lot of sense today so i like it but cool let's leave it there so thanks again appreciate it patrick appreciate your time drew thank you if you learned something from today's show leave a review and hit that subscribe button wherever you enjoy your podcast dive deeper into real estate investing on Brenneman Capital's website, Brenneman.com, where we have numerous free resources and information that can help both active and passive real estate investors. Accredited investors can get started today as a passive investor in our multifamily investment opportunities by hitting the invest now button on our website. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Drew Brenneman and guests as of the date of recording and do not purport to reflect the views or opinions of Brenneman Capital LLC and its subsidiaries. Views and opinions are provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon or deemed as investment or tax advice or an offer to buy or sell securities. The speaker cannot be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.